Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is episode 1B. Those of you who have already listened to episode 1A will have heard our discussion of the Settlement Age from about 870, when the island of Iceland was first settled by uh, expatriate Norwegians, to about 930 and the end of the Settlement Age. In this episode, which we've cleverly named 1B, we'll be discussing the social and political structure of the Saga Age Iceland, the conversion to Christianity, and the collapse of the Commonwealth in the 13th century. Let's get things started with... Governance! So, in order for everyone to understand and appreciate the sagas, uh, we got to consider the development of Iceland's social and political structure from the age of settlement to the conversion. So, going back just a little bit to set the stage, those men who arrived in Iceland in that settlement age, they would have brought with them certain worldviews that would inform their vision and their shaping of Icelandic society. Those who fled Norway in the rule of Harald no doubt sought to preserve a way of life that was no longer viable under the thumb of kingship. This is somewhat ironic since the story of Iceland's history, as we'll see by the end of this episode, is really one of conflict in the pursuit of resources and power, where small farmers are often pitted against the ambitions of more powerful chieftains. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. There are some very practical reasons that we should consider to help explain why Icelandic culture developed the way it did. In keeping with the theme of the episode, it all comes back to resources. Most of the settlers had to be prepared to live in isolation on farmsteads where they were responsible for the welfare of their household. The husbandi, or the householder, had to secure his land, establish and maintain pasturage, tend to hay meadows and the livestock that would support the household, and also prepare for winter. Winter in Iceland is always coming, to borrow a, a phrase. A, a topical reference that will be irrelevant if you're listening to this a couple of years in the future. It will it still be around in the, in the future, John. <laughs> On top of this, and perhaps most important of all, one had to make sure that these resources are protected from opportunistic neighbors and passers-by. Without an established ruling authority, Icelanders had to rely on their own strength and that of their family and friends to protect what was theirs. In this section that follows, we're going to look at how Icelanders settled disputes. Right. And of course, competition for resources isn't the only thing that leads to conflict in medieval Iceland. As much as people were concerned with material wealth, they were often as much or more concerned with their rank and their status within the community. Uh, wealth obviously allows you to buy things that can help raise your status, uh, like fine weapons and flashy clothes and such, and Icelanders do love their flashy clothes. Yes, they do. But uh, uh, like uh, a family background, it doesn't guarantee the respect of the community. An individual had to show himself worthy of deference in medieval Iceland. Uh, the status and rank of every person is based in a large part on honor. Uh, William Ian Miller refers to this as the game of honor, noting that honor is at stake in virtually every social interaction. Family and wealth are valuable, but without honor, a man was nothing. I like that, the game of honor. It's yet another indirect reference or maybe direct right. reference to Game of Thrones. Uh, but I promise you, William Ian Miller wrote that long before uh, Game of Thrones. Right, in defense out. of Miller, this is not, a, yes. not an intentional reference. So uh, what is honor exactly? It's kind of hard to define, but an honorable man is generally shown to be courageous. He's reserved in his speech, but effective in action. He should not shy away from violence, but he also shouldn't rush headlong into it. Every move he makes needs to be calculated very carefully for the greatest effect. So he's got to be helpful to those who seek aid, but not carelessly so. And lastly, he's got to win. Winning at court <laughs> and winning in battle, those are the surest ways to improve one's reputation. Is there a culture in which losing is a way to ensure interpretation? <laughs> no, I think that's pretty standard. Losing is okay, never good. It's sort of universal. Yeah. 
The dishonorable man, conversely, is a coward, often portrayed as too open and talkative. He's likely to be treacherous and weak, both in will and in strength. Now, physical strength is so important in the Viking Age that the weaker man could be accused by his wife or by his peers. He could be accused of homosexuality or even bestiality. And this is a very, very serious charge in that culture. Absolutely. Now, honor was on display everywhere you went, but nowhere was this the case so much as at social gatherings. Whether at assemblies or at feasts, this game of honor is always on. We see this frequently in the hurt feelings and the disputes that arise over the seating arrangements at gathering, which seems silly to us, but is quite serious to them. And shows up a great deal in the sagas as being kind of a, a, a kernel of a few. Yeah, and one of the most famous of these, um, and it's offered by a number of different uh, scholars when talking about this subject, uh, Miller's one of them. Uh, one of, it's found in Ljosvetninga saga, when this powerful chieftain named Gudman the Powerful, he visits one of his thingmen. And also in attendance at this meeting is Olfeg, who, while a thingman of Goodman, is also a very powerful farmer in the district. It becomes very clear right away that Olfeg is used to sitting in the high seat. This is the seat of honor at these gatherings. And he takes offense to Goodman, who is actually the chieftain of the district. Uh, he takes offense to him sitting in the high seat. And he calls him out in a brilliant bit of dialogue that John and I will act out for you. Right, a little playlet for you. So when the tables are set, Olfeg stands in front of Goodman puts his fist down on the table in front of him and says, How big does that fist seem to you, Goodmund? Big enough. Do you suppose there is any strength in it? I certainly do. Do you think it would deliver much of a blow? Quite a blow. Do you think it might do any damage? Mm, broken bones or a death blow. And how would such an end appeal to you? Mm, not much at all, and I wouldn't choose that. Then don't sit in my place! If Thank I may you. Just say, Thank you. A masterful bit of performance. That's our first bit of acting on the podcast. <laughs> Hopefully our last. <laughs> uh, so this example, while ridiculous in the way that John and I presented it, uh, it helps to illustrate the tension that comes with displays of social rank. In a society where rank and status aren't really formalized, these are the occasions where the community can see who ranks uh, where. What should be clear from this brief discussion and the ridiculous play is that when the Icelanders play this game of honor, there's a lot of potential for conflict and hurt feelings. As we'll see in the sagas, an occasion of dishonor like this, it might seem petty to us, but it can quickly escalate into a full-blown feud. Right. Which brings us to the subject of feuding. The first line of defense in Iceland when you're trying to protect yourself or your honor is always, like it was everywhere in Europe, family. And then the second line of defense is going to be friendship. Right. And those, aren't, those lines aren't as clearly delineated as we might expect. Uh, right. That friendship can lead to a kind of familial relationship, whether through intermarriage or through uh, simple declarations of brotherhood. And, of course, family can also be friends or not so friendly. And what you're really trying to do is extend your layers of kinship throughout the, the broadest territory possible. You know, close relatives are great, but they're only a small part of that picture. You've got to establish a strong network of extended kin relations throughout Iceland if you want to survive and rise up in that culture. Right, which helps to explain, by the way, some of the saga author's preoccupation with genealogical information. Uh, on the one hand, the genealogies help to preserve something of Iceland's history and the relationships between families, and of course may have been popular with the initial audience for the sagas, mm -hmm. many of whom were the descendants of the figures being discussed. Uh, on the other hand, the genealogies can also help us to understand motivations between characters in these conflicts. Right. And some of the most exciting moments in the sagas are found in the action surrounding those conflicts, these feuds. 
They erupted for a variety of reasons, but most begin with some kind of dispute over a resource of some kind. So, for example, if John were to graze his sheep in my meadows and I ask him nicely to stop. Well, and I've then got one... a lot of sheep and they've got to graze somewhere. Right. But I don't really like you in my land, so I'm asking you to please <laughs> stop doing that, even if I'm not using it. So one day, one of my sons is out, and he catches one of John's slaves grazing sheep on my land. Now, what is my family supposed to do? If Except my son... that I'm using your land and move on. No, that wouldn't work, because that's dishonorable. <laughs> that's too dishonorable. So if my son's worth his salt, if he's a good boy, he's going to give your slave a good thrashing and a good uh, smart message to take home to you. If John is going to be sensible, he'll stay off my lawn. <laughs> If he's not, then we got a problem that could erupt into a full feud, which could lead to John or one of his family members perhaps killing my son for uh, out of vengeance for the beating that we gave that slave. That that's pretty unreasonable. Like pretty unreasonable. But this is when things get juicy. Once the, the initial conflict is out in the open, it can come to blows very quickly. And knowing who is related to whom can be the deciding factor for a Saga-age Icelander who's trying to figure out who to support in a feud or in a legal case. One didn't have to rely solely on the strength of one's family, though. Uh, Icelandic law actually maintained or decreed that every free man who owned enough property to qualify as a householder had to ally himself with a chieftain or a gothi in Icelandic. And these gothi, they're they're pretty interesting. Um, We translate the title as chieftain, but that's a little bit misleading since a gothi doesn't have the same political authority as a traditional chieftain. Right, and sometimes Uh, you'll also see it translated as priest, which in the same sense is not entirely what they are and can be a little bit misleading for English speakers. We don't really know where the institution of the Goldorth, that is a chieftaincy, comes from, but a lot of people assume it reflects something of the political structure of Norway before the rise of Harald Fairhair. This is that culture that the Icelanders are trying to preserve right. uh, when they get there. The first Goldar, that is the plural of chieftain in uh, Icelandic, they were chosen from the leading men who first settled Iceland. And the title had, as John said, both secular and religious significance, though not every Gothi in the sagas seems to be a devout follower of the gods. Right. Whatever the case, the title is increasingly secular over time. The chieftaincy or the Gothorth was treated as a piece of property that could be owned either by an individual or sometimes multiple individuals. It could be inherited, but it wasn't a permanent title. It's the kind of thing that we're going to see some fluctuation with as we go through the sagas. Now, the primary function of the Gothi is basically legal and administrative and a little bit social, or maybe a lot social, depending on how you look at it. You might consider the more familiar medieval code of Thane-Lord or Vassal-Lord relationship. The Gothi and Thingmen are kind of like that. They do owe each other allegiance, and that usually means help in supporting, prosecuting, and enforcing legal actions. But it's not quite as strict a bond as what you see in a Vassal-Lord relationship. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a lot of opportunity for shifting around. Um, A Gothi is also a source of political influence that every householder needs to help protect what was his whether that's property or honor. In turn, the Gothi then can call upon his thingmen to help support his own claims, or he can call on his other thingmen. What I find really interesting about this is that it's a model of what we call the social contract. Uh, we see it kind of created and enacted in Iceland mm-hmm. in a way we don't in a lot of other societies. Right. Uh, and at the same time, the contract is very much a negotiable affair. Right. The thingman is not bound to his Gothi for life. He's free to shift allegiances when he sees fit. 
uh, or when he sees one Gothi rising to power and another falling, uh, which meant that the Gothar could and did compete for the allegiance of Thingmen. You know, the, ever, the ever-evolving and shifting relationship between Gothar and Thingmen give the sagas a pretty unique flavor and makes them different from a lot of the continental and British literature from the same period that some of our listeners might be more familiar with. One didn't have to jump right into a feud, however. I mean, this is one of the most interesting features of early Icelandic society is an elaborate legal culture. So if John's grazing his sheep on my land or he even kills my son, I don't have to come to blows with him right away. The first step is to bring him to court. The formal governance of Iceland's Commonwealth period, which includes the establishment and publication of a law code, took place at the annual meeting or assembly of freemen, which is called a thing. Mm-hmm. Each region or quarter of Iceland had three local things, which would meet every spring. These would be overseen by three local Gothar from that district, and further evidence of the religious side of their position is found in their responsibilities at the thing site. When they get there, they have to hallow the ground, and then each of them selects 12 judges, usually from the householders of the district, to hear the cases to be tried there. Right. So things are local assemblies at which business is conducted, and legal disputes are at least theoretically settled. The, oh, the word thing appears uh, all across the Germanic language family, by the way. Uh, its meaning of gathering or assembly is common to all the languages in the group. And it's been suggested the word goes back actually as far as Proto-Indo-European, uh, where it refers to a span of time. Uh, it appears in English as early as the 7th century as a synonym for a moot, uh, which is the parliamentary gatherings of the Anglo-Saxons. The modern English use of the word to mean thing as in thing, uh, doesn't appear until 700 years later. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about the word thing is, and the this uh, political assembly in Iceland, I think the modern Icelandic parliament is actually called thing, right? It is, yeah. Yeah, it's actually, it's considered to be a continually operating governmental structure. Absolutely, uh, except the, for they, they meet in buildings now instead of outside. Right, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, every given thing is presided over by the local chieftains, uh, as Andy said, three working in conjunction to conduct the opening and closing ceremonies, oversee court proceedings, appoint the juries, and also do a lot of the politicking that goes on at the thing. Uh, there's a regional kind of parity to the things that ensures, at least in theory, that no one chieftain can run roughshod over the law since there are always two other Gothar to oppose any overreaching that goes on. The all thing, which shows up a tremendous amount in the sagas, probably more often uh, than strictly historically it ought to. Uh, most uh, legal disputes would be settled at regional things, but the sagas like to push us to the all thing as soon as possible. Uh, the all thing is the annual assembly of the entire island at Thingvellir in the southwest of the island. The first all thing was gathered in 930 AD, and it's usually thought of as marking the end of the settlement age and the beginning of the Commonwealth period. It takes place over a few weeks, the beginning of summer, and it works more or less as a clearinghouse for legal matters that cannot be settled at, at a local thing. It's also a fair, an open-air market, a hotbed of gossip, a place for pol- political maneuvering, uh, and, of course, it's a place to make one's reputation as a man of consequence. In theory, it's, also a good, it's also a good place to find a bride or to shop your daughter right. or son around. Absolutely right. And we see a number of um, uh, courtships that take place uh, during the all thing. Yeah, it's a uh, good opportunity for that extending of the kin group, right? That's right. You're seeing people from other districts, men with real power, real money, and it's good to ally yourself uh, to them with uh, a marriage of some kind. Yes, and you know it's supposed to be, because you're at a time when everybody's sort of building these kin groups, it's supposed to work as kind of a substitute for feud vengeance. 
uh, in which you have lots and lots of people who can then help you to negotiate an arbitrated settlement. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, of course, as the sagas show, it's an imperfect substitute uh, for settling feuds through violence. And uh, the all thing frequently fails to avert violence between enemies. To summarize, then, things work on a complex system of political support. You've got Thingmen pledging support to Gothar, who in turn helps supporters win cases and distribute gifts. Uh, Either party can back out of their relationship at any time, so it's vital that the wheels be kept greased. And the all thing is where Gothar and Thingmen prove that they are still uh, in mutual friendship. Mm-hmm. And the sagas just love the interplay between all these characters, and they love the all thing and the development of legal cases. Yes. It's not at all uncommon to find a really elaborate account of the case from both the prosecution and the defense. Typically, the case is going to be prepared according to strict procedural rules in the local district well before the thing even starts. This includes the announcing of circumstances of the case, outlining claims, defining the terms, and gathering all of the appropriate witnesses. The lawyer who oversees the case has to be especially careful because any derivation from procedure can lead to a dismissal due to a technicality. I mean, one of the things we we see... count up the sagas where we see that happen, where uh, a seemingly minor uh, oversight uh, causes the entire case to be thrown out of court. Right. So you know this guy... I know John killed my son, uh, but because I phrased something inappropriately in the the case, we're going to throw the whole thing out of court. By the way, that's a slander. And of course, now I have an opportunity to sue you for having brought a wrongful suit against me. I'm just going to have to get out my sword and we're going to have to go to town. There you go. See, it falls apart very quickly. See how quickly we go into the violence. (laughs) So after the, after, back to the case, when when the whole thing is prepared, the prosecution finally heads to the thing. The defendant doesn't actually have to attend the thing and defend himself. He's got a lawyer representing him there. So it all sounds very modern. Um, But unlike a modern trial, the point of the case is not to establish facts and details, and this is what's kind of confusing about it. I'm not trying to show that you're guilty or, or prove your motivations or anything like that. My job as a lawyer is just to prove that the event actually happened. That's all I got to do. Right. When this case is all done, the judges of the court of court are going to determine an appropriate penalty, if any. Now, penalties are different depending on the crime, which is appropriate, but most of them involve some kind of monetary compensation or outlawry. An outlawry will come up, and of course it's one of the categories that we're using in this podcast. A sentence of outlawry basically means that the man has to be exiled from the land. From the moment that sentence passed, it's considered illegal to feed, house, or help that outlaw in any way. Then a confiscation court goes to the outlaw's home and seizes all of his property. For lesser crimes, an individual might receive lesser outlawry which is equivalent to a three-year sentence of exile. You still get the confiscation court. They still take all your stuff, uh, but you're allowed to come back after three years. Right. But, of course, sometimes cases are not brought to court or they're not permitted to go through the full legal cycle. Uh, And in those cases, one of two things likely happens. First, and preferably, the individuals might have settled the case out of court with the help of an arbitrator. Uh, The arbitrator should ideally be a non-biased, unrelated individual so as to avoid conflicts of interest. And because of the extensive clan networks, sometimes you have to reach quite far afield to find someone who isn't affiliated with either group in a conflict. An arbitrator, if he does a good job, gains a great deal of honor and sometimes gains monetary rewards for uh, their efforts in settling the case nonviolently. That, of course, assumes the community decides that his decision is fair and assumes that the participants actually comply with the judgment of the arbitrator. If we kind of put this all together, if we go back to the dispute between John and me, If I go ahead and bring him to court for grazing his sheep and then murdering my son in retaliation for the abuse of that slave, 
I can probably get a ruling of outlawry or at the very least a substantial monetary reward pretty easily. But it's still up to me and my friends to go and see the fulfillment of justice because without the strong support of Agothi and his followers, it's going to prove really difficult to do that. Now, imagine if, God forbid, John's kin group or his political allegiances are roughly equal to mine. God forbid? <laughs> yeah, from my perspective, yeah. <laughs> right. I just say Thor forbid. It, it's, it's not going to be in your best interest, really, to surrender the money or go into exile, right? Mm-hmm. And if that happens, then I, I only got a couple options. I can let John do whatever he wants because I can't enforce the penalty, but that makes me look like a weakling and I lose a lot of honor. So that's not a good option. I can enforce the judgment through violence and attack him. Uh, that's reasonable. But if he's, his people are uh, just as strong as mine, or if they're stronger, I'm likely to lose my life. Mm-hmm. Or I can challenge him to a formal duel. But in this case, I've got to be careful. John's a little older than me, and he's got a bum leg, but he's also a lot bigger. <laughs> but I'm a pretty laid-back, reasonable guy, although apparently I've already killed your son. Yeah. Uh, and so in this case, I believe I will... Uh, abide by an arbitrated settlement so long as it does not involve outlawry uh-huh. uh, and I can pay your son's man price with gold uh, rather than having to actually leave the island. Right, so I get the, the Ware Guild. And- right. Uh, and Ware Guild is actually, if it's done properly, uh, can uh, redound to the honor of both people involved. Uh, it shows that I am a wealthy man who can afford to pay my debts right. uh, and that I ab- abide by the rule of law. And it shows that your son was valued uh, and that you successfully forced me to accept a punishment uh, for having killed him. That's right. And sometimes if you're a really good guy, John, you will uh, offer me a little bit more than my son is actually worth in order to show... Yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that. No? All right. So (laughs) that wraps up our our section on uh, kind of governance, legal culture, and honor culture. And we're going to shift now over to the conversion of Iceland. The Conversion. Right. The Conversion is one of the seminal historical moments in medieval Iceland. Uh, We've mentioned before, Iceland's settlers were primarily polytheists who named the landscape and themselves for the Norse gods. Uh, Decisions about where to live are made with the gods' help. The law courts are sanctified in the gods' names. Sacrifices are carried out at holy places around the island. Uh, The appearance of Christianity on the island in the late 10th century and the push toward conversion It therefore had the potential to destabilize the entire social fabric of Iceland. Norway had already converted at this time uh, and sent missionaries to Iceland in the late 10th century. Uh, They began traveling and proselytizing around the island. And meanwhile, political pressure was added uh, when Norway threatened to end trading with the Icelanders if they didn't convert, kind of like a modern trade embargo. Uh, So those men on the island who did convert, of course, wanted the entire island to declare for the new religion, both for the political reasons and for religious reasons, uh, what they essentially wanted was uh, for the country to behave as other countries did, in which the entire country would be converted when the king converted to the new religion. Uh, But other Icelanders saw this as a threat to the essential independence that defined the national character, and, of course, others simply preferred the familiar old gods. Uh, The issue became a real crisis. There had only been very limited violence so far, but everyone was on edge. And conveniently, for those of you who are hopeless at remembering dates, Most historians agree that the conversion issue came to a head in exactly 1000 AD. Uh, Typically, for medieval Iceland at its best, the situation was resolved through legal arbitration. Both sides came to the all thing, and after a bit of wrangling, agreed to to abide by the decision of one man, a man named Thorgir Thorkelson, who's the law speaker. Uh, Now, we haven't talked about the law speaker yet. The Mm -hmm. law speaker is the closest thing Icelanders have to a prime minister in the Commonwealth, and that analogy actually isn't a very good one. 
the law speaker's job is to preside over the all thing and to recite the law of Iceland at Law Rock every year from memory. It's a long law code. Very long. Uh, this isn't merely ceremonial. Uh, earlier we said that the law codes were published. That doesn't mean published in written form. Uh, the law code of Iceland actually isn't written down until the end of the Commonwealth era. And so the law speaker's recitation is the primary means of dissemination of legal precedent. As a matter of fact, Thorgeir Thorkelson's successor as law speaker was actually removed from the job because his voice proved too weak to be heard by the assembled crowds. <laughs> you had to yell the law codes so loudly that everyone gathered could hear them. He's just up there mumbling his law code. Uh, sort of, yes. Um, uh, Law Rock, the spot where they recited the codes, was actually chosen for its kind of natural amphitheater qualities. That it would sort of, the sound would bounce off of the rocks behind the speaker to the assembled crowd. Now, Thorgir, the law speaker, is a respected expert on the law. He had already been law speaker for 15 years at this point, but he was also seen as a compromise figure. He's a pagan, uh, but he's related to many converts, and he was seen as a fair-minded sort of centrist. After hearing the arguments, Thorgir goes into seclusion in what I think is the best possible way. He makes a blanket fort out of a hide, and he spends a day and a night under it, contemplating quietly while cross-legged. I wonder if there's some kind of religious significance to that. That I, I mean, I haven't really thought of that before. but It seems likely that there is, but I rather like the idea of him just sort of setting up his little blanket fort and putting up a Do Not Disturb sign on the outside while he sits there and contemplates the future of the island. Is this some kind of Eastern meditation that he's doing? Well, if he did, it worked, because when he emerged, he announced his choice to commit the entire island to the conversion. Of course, being Iceland, it isn't quite that simple. Few people fully turn to the practice of Christianity immediately. And in fact, uh, it takes a long time for most people in Iceland to even become educated about what the new religion required. Right. Uh, But as of 1000 AD, the die is cast, and Christianity is now the religion of Iceland and of its official ceremonies. We get this story told a couple different times in the sagas, um, but it's really told well in Njal's saga, which is the longest and one of the most famous sagas. There's a whole episode in there where it tells the story of conversion through the eyes of, uh, it starts anyways, with the, uh, a man named Thangbrand, or Thangbrand. Uh, he was sent to Iceland by King Olaf Tryggvason, who was the, uh, the uh, Christian king who was applying all this pressure to Iceland. He sent Thangbrand to convert Iceland to Christianity. His first conversion goes pretty easy when he tells a man named Hall that the Archangel Michael will serve as his personal protector. But Thangbrand is not the typical missionary preaching only peace and love. Oh, not by a long shot. No, he's a murderer, he's a thief, and a great warrior who gets himself into all kinds of trouble in (laughs) Norway, in England, in fact, and also when he comes to Iceland. There's going to be a lot of killing. Mm -hmm. Not surprisingly, he's not very welcome in Iceland, both because he's a troublemaker and because they don't really want Christianity there. The saga tells of his initial trouble spreading the word. Shortly after his arrival, he's challenged to a duel. And it's kind of an interesting moment. Rather than using a shield, he uses a crucifix to protect himself. Oh, right. And needless to say, he wins that fight, which would be pretty cool to see. (laughs) Probably fictional also. Now, before he arrives in the Hofdebreka district, the pagans call upon this guy named Hedin the Sorcerer to kill him. Hedin performs a sacrifice, and this causes the earth to split open beneath Thangbrand's horse. He's able to leap off the horse while this is happening and climb out of the chasm, but that poor horse was never seen again. <laughs> Religious disputes are tough on horses in the sagas, aren't they? Yes, I'm just they thinking are. of Freyfaxi in Hrovengel's saga. Yeah, we'll, we'll see that in our next episode, right? 
So Thangbrand continues to tour Iceland, um, and there's a lot of episodes like this where people send uh, someone to kill him, and he almost always wins. I think he always wins, actually. It's also important to note that the Icelanders didn't necessarily see Christianity and the Norse pantheon as mutually exclusive. There's a brief exchange between uh, Thangbrand and this woman who's a very devout uh, polytheist named Steinun, and this provides us with a short opportunity to try our play acting again. John, would you be the woman? Uh, sir, why not? All right, go ahead. Have you heard that Thor challenged Christ to a duel and Christ didn't dare to fight with him? What I have heard is that Thor would be mere dust and ashes if God didn't want him to live. Thank you. Oh. And scene. <laughs> oh, we're garbage, aren't we? <laughs> Thangbrand actually proves quite persuasive as, as he goes throughout Iceland. There's a pretty large population, which includes the famous Njal, who convert to Christianity. And like John said, that leads to a lot of tension between the pagans and Christians in Iceland. Njal Saga goes on to talk about how it's particularly true at the courts, where Christian law comes into conflict with secular Icelandic law, and more importantly, the Christians and pagans no longer trust each other. So they elect Thorgir the Gothi, that is the law speaker that John spoke of, to settle the dispute, and the saga talks about how Thorgir um, is concerned, and he announces to the, the all thing that the division between the Christians and the pagans will eventually rend the peace of the country apart. And so with this in mind, he offers the following ruling. And this is one of those moments that is often quoted in the conversion, uh, again, taken from Njal Saga. He rules that all men in the land are to be Christians and believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and give up all worship of false idols, the exposure of children, and the eating of horse meat. Three years of outlawry will be the penalty for open violation, but if these things are practiced in private, there shall be no punishment. So you can still eat horse meat, you just can't invite your neighbors over to enjoy it. Yes, and you can also still expose your children to the elements right. just so no one hears them crying. I, I, again, I think this is a Christian author who's making the pagan sound as terrible as possible. Right. right? Um, needless to say, that pagan faction that was counting on Thorgir to rule in their favor, they're pretty disappointed. Um, but them's the breaks, and they have to convert to Christianity. <laughs> The Collapse of the Commonwealth. Uh, so during this period, the Icelanders are suffering from famine and sickness, certainly a great deal more often than they would have liked. <laughs> what, what, what is uh, the most it, appropriate amount of famine and sickness for happiness? Oh, I think just a little bit of famine and sickness. Uh, enough to, you know, keep the population in check, but not enough that you actually suffer. <laughs> just a touch of just famine. A, just a, a soupçon of famine and sickness. <laughs> We've got a bit uh, of famine, but we're quite happy. Right. Uh, <laughs> And then you add to that uh, low temperatures, bad weather, uh, and because of a cooling trend in that century, uh, drift ice uh, becomes a real problem uh, around Iceland. Mm -hmm. So with resources already limited and subsistence living constantly under threat, uh, times are no doubt, they're getting quite difficult uh, for the descendants of the settlement age by the 11th century and 12th century. Right. In the settlement period, everything was really great for the Icelanders. The problem really then was there was too much land, too much opportunity, and not enough laborers to work the land. In fact, if you look at the sagas, uh, there's a real kind of sense of nostalgia for the settlement age, which we know from contemporaries was often quite difficult. Uh, people sort of had a hard time surviving. And yet 500 years later, when they look back at the settlement age, it looks like a time of great plenty. Mm -hmm. uh, from people who are living in the privations of the 13th century. 
Now, by the year 1000, things had already changed drastically for them. Uh, most families had outgrown their land and its ability to meet their basic needs. Why is that? John, you know why, because we talked about it in episode 1A. The Icelanders... Yes, but I'm serving as the voice of the listener. Oh, I see. <laughs> why? Because... Also, I, I've forgotten. <laughs> All right, John, let me inform you. Well, you see, the Icelanders survived mainly on their livestock, and their livestock required grass. With the effects of early grazing in the highlands already affecting the landscape, erosion was dwindling the available grassland, and increasingly unpredictable weather made life pretty difficult. There was just a limit on the number of livestock a farm could reasonably support, and therefore a limit on the number of people a family could support. Oh, right. Okay, so we, get, we see this in Ravengill Saga, when the poor farmer Thorbjorn tells his eldest uh, son, Einar, uh, that he can't afford to feed him anymore. That must be a hell of a conversation to have with your son. Son, come here. I've got some bad news. <laughs> uh, well, I can afford to feed all your brothers and sisters, but that's the good news. <laughs> <laughs> you pack your bags. Right. Uh, right. And so uh, Thorbjorn sends his son away to find work, and that sort of leads to uh, uh, the central feud, central plot of Ravenkill Saga. Yeah. And really the story of the 11th and 12th centuries is kind of the consolidation of power that begins to, to take place and a division that grows up between the wealthy, prosperous landowners and those who don't have as much, those like Thorbjorn. I guess maybe one thing we should touch on here is is that the chieftains, at least in the beginning of this period, seem to have been uh, decent fellows, one might say. I don't know if we can trust the sources, but they're not without compassion, uh, at least legally. Yes, it's, it's important to remember that the chieftains are often the ones, uh, or the descendants of the chieftains are often the ones commissioning these works. Mm -hmm. And so they sometimes come off a bit better than they might have been historically. And in fact, what we should sort of marvel at is um, how mixed a bag we get as far as their personalities, uh, and that we do sort of see them warts and all, uh, despite the influence of their descendants on their, their portraits. Yeah, and we can see this kind of contrast in, in the, the law codes and the history books uh, when we talk about the Tide Law, and we'll compare that to kind of what the Tide Law actually did. So it, it basically in, in 1097, uh, there's a guy named Bishop Geezer. He's not just a guy. He's a bishop, I guess. Um, he establishes the Tide Law, and a real big deal is made about how everyone you know loved this bishop, and he was such a good guy that all the chieftains were like, yeah, let's do a Tide Law. Uh, the tithe law requires everyone to calculate the value of their property and then to pay, that, pay a tithe on it. Now, this is important for a bunch of reasons, not the least of which is the fact that this is the first tithe in all of Scandinavia, which is remarkable given the fact that Iceland's the last one to convert, right? Right. The tithe is divided into four parts. There's one part for the bishop, one part for the priest's services one part for church upkeep, and one part for the poor. So this is where the uh, we see the um, Icelandic church gaining power in uh -huh. a recently converted country because we have people accepting this tithe law. We know that the property assessments and enforcing of the tithe law were all in, hand, in the hands of the secular community, however. And from that, we can kind of conclude that the church's influence is still in its infancy. Uh, there's a scholar named Ori Vestensen, whose book, uh, The Christianization of Iceland, is a wonderful book. He argues that the secular interest in poor relief or welfare was probably one of the more important factors leading to the acceptance of the law in 1097. Right, and it's right around this time that the harsh realities of living on an island with limited resources that hadn't been husbanded properly start to become a reality. Uh, so by the end of the 11th century, we begin to see the chasm growing wider between the haves and the have-nots. So the tithe law, although it was well-intentioned, and I think, I think uh, Vestensen has a good point, 
the tithe law actually helps to maintain and broaden the chasm between the wealthy and the poor. Looking at the tithe law from a Gothi's perspective, uh, we begin to see another reason why the law was passed. Yeah, and Vestinson's well aware of this. Uh, according to the law, any person who owns the land on which a church was built could collect a quarter of the tithe set aside for church maintenance. So you see that's this becomes a little bit convenient for the Gothi. Mm-hmm. Uh, even more so when you consider that the uh, quarter for the priest services might well be going to someone in the chieftain's family, if not to the chieftain himself. There's a lot of stuff about how you take care of your priests. It it oftentimes wasn't a member of your family. It was a servant. Mm. And there's rules about the, the bare minimum you have to do to maintain your priest. So basically you have a slave working in your church. Not always, but sometimes. Mm-hmm. The quarter that goes to the poor looks generous, but one could also argue that this was advantageous to the Godar as well. Rather than maintaining slaves or servants throughout the year, a wealthy family could now turn out any unneeded laborers in the off-season and count on the tithe to support them until they're needed again. So in this manner, productivity remains the same for the, for the landowners, and especially the wealthy Gothi, but there are fewer mouths to feed year-round. So however we choose to look at it, this new source of income, where the Gothar are taking in half of the yearly tithe, it is a source of income that improves the material wealth, social standing, and even political power of Icelandic families who are shrewd enough to take advantage of it. And that is Mm. what happens in the 11th and 12th century. It's about families who extend their power through manipulation of the law. Right, well, and of course, uh, making the situation worse is growing skepticism about not only the motivations of the church, but also of the chieftains who held the reins of power. The sagas, which are written toward the end of this period, they're often critical of the thing's ability to diffuse tensions, to resolve feuds. Uh, Some of the sagas set in this later period betray a cynicism about the law's ability to check the power of the uh, Storgothar, the most powerful uh, of the chieftains. Actually, a lot of the sagas are cynical about the law, uh, but there are a few that really make corruption and legal farce their central feature. I'm thinking particularly of Bondamana's saga, which tells the story of Odd Ofixen uh, as a man whose wealth and rising fortunes leads a confederacy of Gothar into an underhanded attempt to ruin him through a lawsuit. And these Gothar, are, they're, I think if I remember correctly, they're, they're the old chieftains. They're the old, like old money. And Odd represents right. new money. Right, exactly. They don't trust him because it's the, you know, he came from nothing. Mm-hmm. Odd attempts to settle the lawsuit honestly, uh, but he gets it caught up on one of those technicalities that we talked about where a lawsuit can be thrown out because it's improperly prepared. When he uh, realizes that he's in danger himself of being outlawed uh, as a result of his failed lawsuit, uh, he turns to his father, Ofig, who solves the problem through a series of bribes and duplicitous alliances in which he turns one Gothi against another. In one instance, he actually ties a money bag onto a long belt and sort of drops it below the hem of his cloak while talking to two Gothar, yo-yoing it up and down (laughs) until they're mesmerized by the pouch and willing to go along with whatever Ofig suggests. Well, it really shows an author who's so cynical that he's, he's just trying to expose the greed of these, these old chieftains, right? Absolutely. And the short story of Alehood actually takes this idea even further. It also has six Storgothar teaming up, but in this case to ruin a small-time brewer and charcoal maker with no real power, no authority, no importance. Those bastards. Uh, so the law is perceived in these stories as losing its power to govern the actions of the powerful, And in a country with no recognized central authority, perception really is the source of much of the law's power. If you stop believing in it, it ceases to work. Right. And also, it just depends on who controls the chieftaincies, and that's what starts to happen in the 12th and 13th centuries. 
the Sturlunga Age. This is the time when the big chieftains, or what are called Storgodi, uh, start taking over the different chieftaincies in Iceland. They consolidate rule. So whereas traditional Godi suggested authority of a given district, a Storgother is much, much more ambitious. Through massive wealth, influence, and power, they gain control over entire regions, collecting each individual chieftaincy in that region like it's a trading card or something. It's a strange analogy. Is it? A little bit. Okay. Well, I, I'm just doing my best here, Johnny. <laughs> I appreciate that. Carry on. <laughs> so around, uh, by 1220, nearly all the chieftaincies in the country were owned by only five families. Um, so if you if we go back, you can think about chieftaincies. There were about 39 different chieftaincies, right. and each of those would have been owned by a different family. So by 1220, only five families owned those chieftaincies. By 1245, only two major families remained. One of the things that makes this period so different from the Saga Age is just the sheer aggressiveness and ruthlessness of the Storgo there. They're really capable of heinous acts of torture and kinslaying, the likes of which would never have been seen in the Saga Age. Really, much of the blame for the chaos in this period has to go to Snorri Sturluson. Uh, Snorri Sturluson is a tremendously important figure in the literary production of Iceland, and we'll talk about him more uh, through that lens in episode 1C. But his political maneuverings uh, sort of drop him right in the middle of all the machinations that go on in the 13th century among the Storgothar. After Snorri establishes a seat for himself at Borgafjord, he travels to Norway, and he becomes a vassal of King Hakon Hakonarsson. Now, that's what several of the Storgothar did, they attempted to ally themselves with the, Nor- the Norwegian kings to gain power, to gain uh, wealth. But Snorri really goes a bit further and becomes an actual vassal of the king. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons uh, that, a- that a lot of the, the Gothar and, and Storgothar are going to Norway at this time is because the society has changed in such a way and their position in society has changed in such a way that the legal culture of Iceland no longer really works for them. Right. And their best example of how to kind of go forward as these these giant chieftains or big chieftains to kind of consolidate rule, the best model is going to be over in Norway. And that's where they go to kind of, it's almost like going to college for them. Let's go over there and see how this whole system works and how we can subjugate people and, and take advantage of right. them. Get, right. Get, get a master's in exploiting the poor. Right. Uh, but Snorri actually takes it even further than that, because as uh, a vassal of Hakon, he's given a task uh, of bringing Iceland under Norwegian control. Yeah. Uh, rather than fulfill his obligation to Hakon, however, uh, Snorri returns to Iceland and continues to expand his own domain, and by 1230, he's become the most powerful chieftain in Iceland. He's a really opportunistic character. Um, he's, yes, he is. He's presented in contemporary sagas by his, his own relatives uh, in sometimes a good light, sometimes a bad light. But what makes him mm-hmm. so fascinating as an individual is trying to figure out where exactly his loyalties lie. Uh, sometimes it yes. seems like he's, he is working with Norway, and then at other times it's, he seems to be a very selfish and, and uh, uh, aggressive overlord of Iceland. Well, and he's so busy with all this that you really wonder where he found time to do all the writing yeah. that's credited to him, where n- a number of really important texts are credited to Snorri Sturluson. You just don't know when he would have found time to do it. No. But uh, the- between stabbing his friends in the back and uh, working under and behind the king of Norway. Right, exactly. Uh, so at this point, things get kind of complicated. Uh, we'll try to keep it as simple as possible for you. Snorri uh, is forced back to Norway around 1235 when his nephew, Sturla Sigvitsson, is sent by Hakon to uh, finish the job he'd assigned to Snorri. Sturla takes control of most of Snorri's domain territories 
and then continues the process of expansion, defeating uh, most of the most most of the important families of Iceland. Uh, along the way, Sturla and a number of his relatives actually die in battle. Uh, we really do have kind of open battle going on mm-hmm. in Iceland in this period. Uh, this leaves the northern quarter of the country and some other territories in the hands of a man named Colbin. Uh, but meanwhile, if we look back at Norway, Snorri is caught up in a plot by Earl Skuli to overthrow King Hakon. Now, Hakon's not terribly happy about this. The plot fails, and Snorri is ordered to remain in Norway. But he's a shrewd individual, and he thinks better of it, so he leaves for Iceland uh, around 1239. Which, on the face of it, is a good decision. I mean, you don't necessarily right. want to stick around the court of a man you've been found to be plotting the overthrow of. But this is exactly the opportunity that Hakon is waiting for, because this decision really confirms Snorri's status as a traitor, and Hakon is able to now legally seize all the lands and properties that, and that includes the many chieftaincies, that Snorri owned. And that what mm-hmm. is what Hakon is looking for in Iceland. Now, just because Snorri escapes to Iceland doesn't mean that Hakon is done with him. The king sends a letter to Snorri's rivals, Geezer Thorvaldsson and Kolbein, and encourages them to force Snorri out of Iceland or, failing that, to kill him. Now, Geezer and, uh, and Kolbein are not that interested in trying to get Snorri to leave again. They want to kill him. And so, right, well, and this is their opportunity, isn't it? It's the They've best. They've more or less been told, dead or alive. Yeah. So they end up tracking Snorri down. Actually, it's Geezer who tracks Snorri down, and he brings with him 70 men. Uh, on the evening of September 23rd in 1241, Snorri finds himself hiding in a cellar to avoid capture. He's found there by three of Geezer's men, and despite his pleas for the men not to strike him, Snorri is murdered there. Now, most of Iceland saw this as a terrible act. I feel like there should be thunder rolling in the background as you say that. Yeah. Uh, Regardless of how we view it, this is what Hakon had been looking for. This is his foothold. He now has all of the properties and titles that, that Snorri once had, and he's got his hand in Geezer's pocket as well. His quest for the control of Iceland really begins at this moment. Mm-hmm. And ironically, Hakon becomes famous as a patron of the arts, despite killing possibly the most famous author yeah. of medieval Scandinavia. Well, it's possible that while Snorri was over in Norway, he was writing a lot of this stuff. I mean, he probably didn't have a lot mm-hmm. else to do. So he could have done a lot of his literary production um, in the five to, let's see, he, he was there around uh, at least four years um, when he was called back. So that's enough time to get a couple things written. Mm-hmm. To make a very long story short, the king continues his quest to gain influence over the leading men of Iceland. He uses violence. He uses political persuasion. He uses all the tools in his bag. There's probably a lot of tools there. He's a wealthy individual. So by 1250, Hakon's established control over the northern, western, and southern quarters of Iceland. And by 1262, he's got enough power and enough of the chieftaincies to force the approval at the Althing of the surrender of Iceland to the overlordship of Norway. Of course, it's not entirely clear that it was forced. Uh, Most Icelanders are becoming increasingly frightened by this time of... But it's really, I mean, it's near anarchy and despotism that's taken over by 1262. It's really the, the, the total social fabric and political fabric of Iceland as we knew it is, is destroyed during this period. Absolutely. There's a lot of pressure from inside Iceland as well as from without to invite the Norwegian overlordship. Yeah, and when the votes are all tallied, the country did agree to the takeover, uh, whether it was forced by Hakon or uh, it was a free choice. The Commonwealth era officially draws to a close at this point. It's a little bit of a bummer to end on, but there you go. Um, And unfortunately for us, that wraps up episode 1B. 
So, if you'd like to hear a bit more about the literary production of Iceland in this era... And who wouldn't. And who wouldn't. Uh, the ways in which saga writing came to be, and maybe a little bit more of an upbeat story than the decline and fall of the Commonwealth, you can move ahead to episode 1C. Uh, otherwise, you can jump ahead to episode 2 and our first normal episode, in which we will discuss Ravenkill's saga. Uh, so, thanks very much for listening this far. And don't forget to check out our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, where you can find new episodes of Saga Thing. Also, follow us on Twitter at SagaThingPod and like us on Facebook at SagaThingPodcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. (laughs) Enjoy my sack of gold.